Welcome to you, my most trusted listener. As you may be aware, this is the third in the series of five podcasts to highlight the institutional prejudice experienced by people burdened by the label of personality disorder. Are you having fun yet? No, me either. Before I crack on, I'd like to thank all the contributors to this box set who've given up their time, their passion, their experience, skills and knowledge. Huge thanks to Holly, who you'll be hearing from later today, uh, Lara, Laura, Nell and Naomi for their input in earlier episodes, and to Emma and Holly, who I've interviewed for the fourth and final episodes. Thanks too to the countless others who want to remain anonymous, some due to the toll it will have on their mental health, some because of concerns that speaking out will negatively impact their services or what's written in their medical notes. Dear professionals, don't follow your punters on social media. Just don't. And don't use the stuff you scrape from their accounts to further invalidate them in their medical notes. Just, just stop it. I'd like to make an apology. It's been pointed out to me that I've been overly focused on people carrying the label who've been the victims of abuse. I'm really sorry for that. The very, very last thing I want to do is invalidate the very people I want to make a noise about. If that describes you, please get in touch. There's an episode or episodes with your name or names on it. And obviously, if you want to remain anonymous, then I'm happy to make the reasonable adjustments to make that happen. As with the previous episodes, I'll be reading from the arse-clenchingly prejudicial personality disorder course description that motivated me to produce this short series. In the middle of the pandemic, BBC Children in Need raised a whopping £39 million. Sure, it was less than the years before, but what do you expect? People were, and continue to be, really up against it. For those of you who donated, or immersed yourself in a bath full of baked beans for charity, ask yourself, why did you do it? I'm fairly sure your generosity boils down to just a few things. You like children. I mean, look at them, with their big eyes and readiness to smile, with some manner of shenanigans never far away from their youthful, enthusiastic minds. Secondly, you see them as vulnerable. As the name of the, the charity suggests, you see these young folk as children in need. You're stepping up to the plate. You're righting a wrong. Thirdly, and finally, in my hugely oversimplified summary of your kindness, you see children as blameless in their circumstances. What's going on around them isn't, it, it can't be their fault. They are worthy of your non-judgmental love and compassion. At what point, though, does that start to wear off? When do you start to think it's time for them to move on, to stand on their own two feet? You may well have looked at the Children in Need website who proudly declare they are funding 1,308 projects supporting children across the UK with their emotional well-being and mental health. They tell us that because of these projects, 1,000, sorry, 179,000 children have stronger self-belief. 152,000 152, have stronger emotional well-being and 83,000 are more empowered. We all know these measurements are just so much happy, clappy bullshit. With just the slightest amount of thought, you'll come to the startling realisation there is no such thing as a self-beliefometer. 
You know these figures are pumped out by children in need and the charities to make them and you feel good. To justify your wonderful contributions. Oh, who knows? Your, your donations may actually go some way to alleviate the increased impact of physical and learning disabilities, of mental health problems that are often compounded by the scourge of homelessness, poverty, sexual and physical abuse, neglect, food poverty and the trauma of witnessing domestic violence. But that's not the point, is it? At what stage do you stop giving a fuck? Does it happen suddenly at 18, or is there a sliding scale of disengagement from their early teens to burgeoning adulthood when they're supposed to launch independently into the world? What is the sell-by date on the effects of poverty, of physical disability, of learning disability and mental health problems, of hopelessness, sexual and physical abuse, neglect, food poverty and the trauma of witnessing domestic violence? What is the expiry date on the craziness that may be brought on by some or all of these adverse life events? A craziness that's certainly worsened by the paucity of underfunded services, institutional prejudice and the inaction of good people. What would you think if all your donations came to nothing, as many of these children stumble into adulthood when they've never experienced the right support or talking therapies? These same children who just a few years ago you loved and cared for, who are worthy of your time and empathy, are suddenly branded with a personality disorder. A lifelong medical insult that comes free with an incredibly limiting, self-fulfilling prophecy, where many of those charged with their care declare to anyone who's willing to listen that these previously vulnerable and worthy individuals are attention-seeking and manipulative. Here, once again are the hateful words of the course advert. Personality disorder, PD, is a thorn in the flesh of many clinicians as, however they may wish to avoid managing those with such a diagnosis, those with a personality disorder label have a tenacious hold on the clinician. While only a small minority of PD patients actively seek treatment, although often in a dysfunctional manner, the majority avoid contact with health professionals, but nonetheless cause considerable distress, both to themselves and those around them. The uncertain nature of the PD diagnosis and the unproven nature of its treatment uh, results in psychiatrists being damned if they do, i.e. getting involved and then being blamed for the subsequent outcome, and damned if they don't, i.e. avoiding responsibility and hence being blamed for the subsequent outcome. This course is aimed to equip clinicians with a rational and defensive approach in the management of this group. As before, I won't read out the course objectives here since the foundations of the course are built on prejudicial hatred. Any learning they claim to offer is utterly invalid. Who is the course aimed at? General psychiatrists in the main, but variants of this have been well received by other mental health professionals such as psychologists, mental health nurses, social workers, etc. So, hi Holly, um, the, the, welcome to this podcast which is all about prejudice in mental health services and I guess other mental health services off the back of what we, we shall now know as that advert. Oh, yeah. Let us just spend a moment while we sit and reflect and think what a big silly the person was who wrote that. Mm.
Anyway, so I've dragged you onto this uh, in the hope that you will, you've got some fine mental health set pieces for people who have been bludgeoned half to death with the label of borderline personality disorder, personality disorder, and or emotionally unstable personality disorder. There's a theme here, personality disorder. Okay. Hello. Welcome. Hello. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got some thoughts. Oh, I've got good. some tales. Oh, I do, <laughs> I do love a tale. I do love a tale. Also, um, as I just said, before recording, this is a perfect time to do it because I was in A&E last night. That's nice. <laughs> good times. Um, I've been there quite a bit recently, um, several times, and I was there three weeks ago, and basically last night when I was there in a different hospital, found out that uh, sort of how badly um, they might have fucked up three weeks ago. Um, in terms of, and you know, my whole life, obviously, okay, <laughs> in okay. terms of things I've experienced. But the thing that happened a few weeks ago, um, which led to me being in A&E for eight hours, um, just to get a, an ECG and bloods, was that I'd that morning, um, like collapsed in my house and um, didn't know how long I was out for, but had come to and had been sat up, shaking all over, um, hadn't like hadn't lost consciousness, but had a sort of weird waking vision. Right, thing. right. Like it, I I remembered it when it was over. Like I remembered that I'd been having a weird waking dream, but yeah. I didn't know what it was, and I didn't remember what happened in it. As soon as I was awake, as soon as I was fully, um, like you know, what's the word? I'm a bit brain foggy today. <laughs> um, as, soon, as soon as I was basically fully fully awake again, um, and normally, and I faint a lot. Right. And obviously no doctor's ever been interested in that. But um, normally when I faint, as I've been doing since I was probably eight years old, okay. I um, I will fully black out and will come to like on the floor, sometimes having fallen in a painful way. But um, so, this was not like that at okay, all. Okay. And when I, went to, when I was in A&E, they said after eight hours that um, it was just stress. And I was also having really, really extreme heart palpitations. So um, just stress. So, so I, I, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm now 57 years old and I've got to say I have, I spend a lot of my time passing out and having waking dreams, shaking mm. on the floor because of, because of stress. So yeah. I, I, I don't see what, it's your, a what your issue is. This is a normal stress well, reaction. The thing is, so this is the thing I found out last night is that um, when I mentioned it to the, to the A&E doctor I saw last night was that... Um, he was like, why didn't they refer you three weeks ago to the to the first fit clinic? Because that doesn't sound like fainting. It sounds like a seizure. Yeah. And I was like, oh, well, they didn't believe me, actually. <laughs> they said, oh, you, faint, you fainted before. Well, it was a faint then. And I said, it was not like any faint I've had before. And they were like, nah, it's stress. It's fine. <laughs> and um, so that's one very fun recent little so of affairs. At the time when they were doing this assessment, mm. were, were they aware that there was a, a mental health cloud hanging over your head? Yeah, that was the mistake I made. Was that, uh, um, schoolgirl I, error. Well, I, I, when the triage nurse asked me how I was doing, I like broke down and I've had like I've had a stressful time recently. So, um, you know, there has been a lot more of the old uh, old trauma stuff going on. Right, right. So. Um, 
it was and I he did ask if I wanted to see the psych team and I thought yeah while I'm here might as well because yeah, I never see yeah. a lot of mental health professionals anyway normally um because you've been on waiting lists for yeah. as long as I've known you yeah which is roughly a thousand <laughs> years so when we, when we did our podcast episode like what Three years ago, maybe, yeah. maybe it was just two years ago. I have no sense. I have of a time. feeling it was yeah, about nearly three it years. It might ago. be three years. Yeah, um, I thought I was just about to start therapy then, and then within two weeks, I'd gone for my pre-therapy um, meeting with them, and they'd just then and there decided actually we're just going to discharge you because you don't have a fixed address in this area anymore. Wow. Yeah. I suppose it's it's different from telling people we can't give you a service because you're too complex. You're not complex enough. Mm. You're too ill. You're not ill enough. So this time they booted you because of geography. Yeah. Geography is their favourite. Yeah, yeah. Even if you've lost your home unexpectedly for, you know, slightly traumatic reasons, they are not particularly fussed about that. So you became homeless. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't um, roofless. <laughs> yeah, but, but that's the vast was, majority uh, of people who are. Well, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I didn't. I then didn't have a um, an address in the area, but I was still working there, and um, yeah, they were just like, "Oh, what? You don't? You don't live here?" Ah, oh, fuck off then. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, last minute. But anyway, yeah, it's been a lot of a lot of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Sort of variations on a theme for the past fifteen years. So. You then you you made like I say the, the the terrible mistake of telling the doctors. I mean, was this a Manchester Royal Infirmary? Yes, this was MRI. Yeah, they. Um, you told them that you had a history of mental something. I like didn't that. even say that. I just talked about a recent traumatic incident and said it really affected me. Right, right. Um, and that, to be fair, that nurse who I first spoke to was absolutely delightful. Right, right. He was such an angel and he got me like a private room and um, and like kind of, there were a lot of people waiting around, like it was so busy. Yeah, yeah. And um, he was like, I'm going to sort you out, come here. And he was really, really great. But then um, the person from the like mental health team who I saw was so rubbish. Um, He told me I was over-informed. Over-informed about my own mental health. (laughs) What does that even mean? Um, Well, to me it means that um, as a person living with a chronic illness, you've had to become an expert on it because doctors will gaslight the shit out of you at any given opportunity, so you have to be very firm on the facts about any condition that's been, that's relevant to you. But, um, you know, to him it means um, he's this... Yeah, this, pretty bitch this, this <laughs> telling ups, me about her that. life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I I can't think why they would possibly think that that was an okay thing to say to you. What what kind of outcome <clears throat> were they hoping for from? Um, hopefully that the knowledge would drop out of my <clears throat> brain and I would become less uh, informed. I see. I can I can only imagine that. Tree panning, a drill yeah. to the head, and it'll or just like a away. lobotomy, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear those are good. Um, yeah, and then the, the actual A&E consultant who was there for the physical stuff was like, well, it's not a thyroid issue, you can go. Right. The ECG was fine, which obviously they take an ECG for like a second. So, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's like, it, well, if you have like fits where your heart rate suddenly <clears> elevates <throat> and then drops again, if you're not having a fit, <laughs> then, you know, it's not really going to show up on an ECG in that moment. Well, that's... 
weird that it's a bit like I don't know police turning up at a car accident and and taking witness statements and then saying well we didn't see anything mm. uh, so there was no accident thanks very much thanks for coming by yeah nothing to see here it doesn't matter that they can see the evidence of it <laughs> or, or, or yeah or, or, or take notes and clinically assess what might have happened or what was yeah. going on or actually refer you to the people who might actually be able to yeah I mean, that was the other thing as well, is that when the A&E consultant said, oh, I think you just had a normal faint, and I said, okay, then can we explore the fact that I faint very frequently and I always have since I was a child? I said, I think it's um, something that several people I know have called POTS, which is postural tachycardia syndrome. All right, so you, uh, you, your body, uh, your blood pressure drops when you stand up, and so... yeah. You, the way that yeah. they, yeah, the way that they, I think the way they measure it off the top of my head is that you take your, like, heart rate and blood pressure when you're at rest. Yeah. And then you stand up and then immediately take it again. And if your heart rate is elevated more than 30 beats per minute, um, then that's, that's, the, that's, okay. the, that's the way they diagnose it. They could have literally done that in A&E and it was the second time I'd been to A&E in... I mean, that, that A&E especially in like maybe just over a year because of, um, because of passing out or having, um, or, you know, now we know one of them was probably some sort of cute little seizure. But um, yeah, <laughs> he wasn't interested in that either. He was like, only children have POTS. Oh. And that's very interesting because no one I know who has it has been diagnosed as a child. They were diagnosed pretty recently. I thought you meant they, you have to have a diagnosis now to be a child. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, so you've got POTS, which obviously means you're a child. So yeah. uh, you can't... Where the fuck do you start with that? Right, okay. So this is just a sort of indicator of, of the cesspool of services that you encounter... Mm with diagnostic overshadowing and uh, being dumped like a hot potato. So when you heard or read the job, uh, sorry, the, the course advertisement mm. on, on Twitter uh, just a few days ago, what thoughts danced through your head? Oh, there was a resounding lack of surprise. Um, <laughs> right, right. Like, yeah, just was not um, was not in any way shocked uh, by that at all. I did have a really terrible encounter with a psychiatrist recently as well, um, which sort of and I really thought that largely there's like very naively um, that the you know mental health sector as a whole was moving away from BPD as a diagnosis. Sure because of all of the research that, you know, calls it into question. Um, that lacks validity and reliability as yeah, a construct. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I thought we were getting to the point where we were going to start, you know, looking on BPD the way we look at things like hysteria, you know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like there's yeah. sort of overwhelming, um, like, oh God, sorry, yeah, again, brain fog. Can't, can't do words today, yeah. but sort of, yeah, the overwhelming, like, um, you know, I want people who are like socialized as women 
who find out much later that they're neurodivergent yes who get a bpd diagnosis if they have any kind of trauma yeah because they're like oh you're you have trauma but you're weird. Yes, yes. <laughs> and we don't really know what to do about it. So we'll just stick a label on <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. So we'll make sure you can never access any treatment, medical, like physical or um, or mental. <laughs> and um, yeah. So more diagnostic overshadowing. Mm. Um, so what hope is there? What two questions really? What hope is there for us? Um, what should we be doing to challenge, to change, in your view? I don't know. I think I'm in a very particular sort of mindset about it today where I don't feel particularly hopeful about it at all. Um, I think... I mean, like, it seems like services claim that they're being... Um, that you know, leaning towards like a patient-led yeah, approach yeah. for things, but that seems like a lie. I feel like in practice it seems like the opposite. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I get taken less and less seriously by all kinds of healthcare professionals. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know at all. I guess things like this are helpful. Yeah, see, uh, what, what I'm trying to do is gather as many voices together as I can to try and think of a way, or think of a future. I think it, it, it's all well and good raising awareness. Um, but what do we do once that awareness has been raised? Where do we go with it? What, what do we do with it? Yeah. How, how do we affect real change? Well, you don't want to be over-aware as well. <laughs> people, people get really concerned if you're over-aware. Yeah, you're over-stimulated. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you were talking a bit about your um, psychiatrist and how that episode didn't go that well. Very badly, yeah. Um, I wasn't even trying to get rid of a VPD diagnosis. Right. I didn't think that would ever happen. I actually didn't know you could get rid of it. So right. it wasn't something I was even trying to do, but I just wanted to... Um, I've got pretty bad PTSD. Yeah. And I just wanted some help with that. And I've never... No, because I got diagnosed with BPD age 18, every single encounter with any kind of... Yeah. Any mental health services since then has been, you know, defined by that. And um, even though at 18, I... There were things about myself that I didn't even know. Sure. Like, I didn't have the language for so much stuff I experienced. I actually didn't... This is the thing as well, is when you grow up, like, and your brain's always been a certain way from yeah, a very young yeah. age, which is kind of what, you know, the experience of people who are neurodivergent and also have developmental trauma have. Like, you don't know that the way that you think is weird, or you don't know that... Because it's things, all yeah. you know. Yeah. I didn't... And also, there were some things that I took really literally. Like, I... <laughs> I didn't realize how much I dissociated right. until I read more about dissociation and realized that my the definition I'd been given by mental health professionals was really narrow and I'd taken it really literally. Yeah, yeah. But I actually dissociate all the time. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that the things, the episodes I experienced were emotional flashbacks. Um, 
but now I realise I have a lot of flashbacks. Right, right. I didn't know that I had intrusive thoughts until a couple of years ago, which is hilarious because I, I really thought that everyone else's brain had about eight tracks in it all the time <laughs> and like at least two of them were disturbing. Like, you know. All playing at the same time. Yeah, you just assume that everyone else has the same thing going on, but they're better at managing it. Yeah. Or at least yeah, I did. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've actually forgotten the question. But you, you, I think what we were talking about is you went in to see a, a psychiatrist. Yeah. You, you weren't oh, yeah. looking for I just a re-diagnosis. You wanted acknowledgement. I just wanted acknowledgement of the PTSD. Yeah. And I, because, you know, having been a chronically ill person for a long time, um, I did, you know, I did made sure I knew exactly what I was talking about beforehand. So I could say, look, I know I pretty neatly fit the diagnostic yeah, yeah. criteria here. Um I need this diagnosis because I need to access trauma therapy. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't want to live like this anymore. No, no. And um, instead the woman was, I mean, it was one of those things as well where we instantly, like I didn't like her within the first two seconds because of the way she spoke to me. Yeah, yeah. But she really went like above and beyond to um, twist everything I said around. Um, she said some things that were... Like, I wrote down a lot of it afterwards. And she said some things that actively just lies. Okay. One of the things she said was that um, only people with BPD and anxiety have intrusive thoughts. It's not a PTSD thing. Right, right. It, I'm sure a lot of people with PTSD would be delighted to hear that. I'm sure and they it, would. It would like, just oh, go okay. away. I've just got anxiety. Yeah. But also, um, I just want to make clear, uh, PTSD diagnostic criteria do say that anxiety symptoms are part of... <laughs> part of PTSD so um, yeah, yeah. don't know how that um that I don't know how intrusive thoughts aren't included in that but um yeah I also said to her in response to that oh I think they're also an ADHD thing side note I have pretty severe ADHD and um she said no she said that was not true at all I looked up all of these studies afterwards and was yeah. like here is all the evidence I was right <laughs> it's I mean she also she just didn't believe that I had flashbacks and then she said that flashbacks were the only, the only criteria for PTSD really that mattered. Nothing else mattered. I could fit every single. And because criteria she because decided she not to believe you yeah. that you had them, then obviously you didn't have it. Yeah. So yeah. So. Is it your feeling that she saw emotionally unstable personality disorder, BPD, whatever, front and center, and then everything that followed that? was seen in those terms yeah she she would twist things and i think she was making more mental leaps than you had to to get so you know i was saying well i think this is a ptsd thing and she'd be like no it is a bpd thing and i'll explain why right, <laughs> and, right. like um she said she also made assumptions that i tried to correct her on that she just went with anyway like i would she would say something that wasn't even it would be kind of trivial um she said something about the catchment area for therapy in like like for my local nhs service and i said that's not the catchment area i would have to like stay within this area if i wanted to stay with this therapy and um she just literally didn't believe me and she does not live where i live right <laughs> this was a zoom call right and i looked it up later and she lives in london <laughs> and she was uh, trying to tell me really detailed things about um this area that she was literally just assuming and i i knew that she was wrong because i'd had a full conversation with a therapist from that service about that specific thing but do you find yourself walking away from that conversation thinking i must be mad maybe she does know more about my area than oh, me i felt truly insane yeah 
I'd like, and also, yeah, I've experienced as a, as a person with mental illness, as a woman, as, you know, as there's many things, that I've experienced a lot of medical gaslighting over the years, but that was, abs it was like she wasn't even pretending at this right, point. Right, right. Um, she kept twisting things I said, like, um, like, because we got into this weird debate where she kept saying I didn't want therapy, and I said, why? Why would I be here trying to get the right diagnosis in order to access the specific kind of therapy that would help me? if I did not want therapy <laughs> and um, she said then she just ignored that and said that my um, my reluctance to engage with therapy was because of my fear of abandonment which is only a BPD thing as well no one else can fear abandonment I um, see. even though that seems like a pretty like base <laughs> animal instinct but like uh, yeah and I said oh is it not to do is it not like an avoidance thing perhaps which is a ptsd thing <laughs> you know avoidance because of past medical trauma especially around mental health services and she was like no no just the thing i said wow. <laughs> every like any time i disagreed with her that was a that was a bpd trait too you know it was that was you know and it's it's, it was. it's impossible i mean once you've got a label of being attention seeking and being manipulative yeah uh, fear of abandonment it, it sounds like she had a cluster of symptoms and she interpreted every single thing you said in those terms. There was, there was, it's, a, it's like those plants, you know those plants that you eat where, where insects go around the edge of the plant um, mm. and they, they, because they can smell the lovely nectar inside and then they slip inside and they're slowly being digested by digestors juices and they can't get out because it's mm. too slippery that's what that sounded like it yeah. sounded like there was no escape possible yeah from this yeah if you if you sound too well informed then they're like oh clear sign of manipulation yeah she's only armed herself with this knowledge to lie to us because who else would want to know about their own medical conditions nobody no yeah, yeah. if i if i weren't so manipulative i'd have a complete lack of curiosity about everything going on in my brain I, I just, you know, it's terrifying. Mm. It really was my worst fear. I was a real mess after that appointment. She, I mean, luckily, so it was a private um, assessment service and we got a full refund because we reported her and I wrote like a three-page statement basically about exactly what had happened. And I think a huge part of it was because of the things that she'd insisted that were clearly just untrue. Right, like the, right. like the diagnostic criteria for things. And I was like, no, she can't, no. Just because she doesn't want to give me a certain diagnosis, she cannot make up facts and then, you know, that that's just yeah. terrible. That's just her not knowing how to do her job. <sighs> God. But yeah, it was not a... Oh, my other favourite thing that she said was... Um, again in the therapy conversation um, she said well what do you want trauma therapy and I was like yes I would like trauma therapy and she said well trauma therapy is a lot of hard work and um, in a way that implied I was uh, not interested in hard work so on one hand she's saying you d you're not engaging with services yeah um, and then on the other hand she's telling you not to engage with services because mm. it's hard work yeah you wouldn't like it it's too hard for you someone who'd known me for 10 minutes at this point because you, you, you she just because life so far has been a breeze you know because you, you, you she obviously assessed you as a, a bone idol flippity gibbet who mm. um who, who just wants therapy done to you and fucking hell mm -hmm.
I don't understand also what in what any anything that I'd said, especially if she's like so overinformed. Yeah. I mean, that was a different person who actually said to me I was overinformed, but um, but yeah, clearly like her horror at my having all this information is like, would a lazy person go and memorize every single Why? every single yeah. different like 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 um whatever different list of of symptoms criteria? Yeah. You know. Oh God. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you got your money back. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather have um, a correct diagnosis and um, so what's not, the next, what's, not to have had that conversation. What's the next step? In terms of... I mean, do you go for another shot of that? Or with, well, with a, I, was, uh, I was actually diagnosed... Sorry, I was actually referred to be re-diagnosed on the NHS by right. a GP I spoke to in January. But I've not heard a single thing right. about it. Um so, who knows? So, what, you'll wait for that? Or, or do you, are you going to go with that £400 in your hand and say, fucking do that to me again, that'd be great? <laughs> I loved it so much the first time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think... Well, I found a really nice private therapist. Right. Um, who I can do trauma work with. So, you know, the solution is going to be to go private because they also don't really offer the kind of therapy I would need anyway on the NHS in my area. And that's, that's another interesting thing because prejudice isn't just a sort of face-to-face -face insult. Mm. Although, you know, you've, you've done well on the face-to-face -face insults. It's, it's people offering you treatments and therapies that don't match the mental malady you've been awarded. Mm. That's happened to a friend of mine who did get her CPTSD diagnosis. Yeah. Um, and she lives in, in a different town to me, but um, they have, it's one of the few places in the UK where they have an adult complex trauma service. Right, right. They do long-term trauma therapy for people with complex trauma and, um, and not in the way that like personality disorder units do them. Yeah. Um, and she just got diagnosed with CPTSD, asked for a referral to it, and they were like, here, we're going to put you on this course of BPD awareness. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you no longer have that because, what, that might cost us money? Or... Yeah. I don't know what goes on. It, I mean, it just feels like a huge act in gatekeeping mm. and under the guise of people saying, well, this is clinical, when... It appears that that's not the case so so many times. You, I remember you told me a while back about um, somebody who told you that uh, six months therapy would be enough for. Oh God, yeah, yeah. I got offered um, mistakenly. To be fair, the head of the service phoned me and apologised because they they had done a fuck up. It turns out right. they hadn't. Um, hadn't put the right information on my on my referral so I got on a waiting list for the wrong length of therapy it was less than six months it was something like 16 sessions right which could have taken six months maybe with breaks but um it, but it was barely that anyway and um it was with a trainee therapist and I'd said yeah I'd, I'd be happy to work with a trainee because I don't think it matters necessarily sure. if they have that much experience if they are a good person with whom I can have a good relationship, like, therapeutic relationship. Yeah, so yeah. Um, unfortunately 
on, on both counts, this woman was awful. So um, she also didn't know the service that she was uh, working within. So she told me a lot of things that were blatant lies that the head of the service had to correct to me on so the So instead phone. of saying, right, so you're a new person to an organisation, instead of saying, actually, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I can get back to you on that. She lied. Well, I think she just said something that she sort of thought sounded right in the moment. Like, right, right. You know, like her answer to... Because my question was, I was like, well, look, I've got, you know, several acute traumatic incidents. And I've also got a lot of long-term, low-level emotional abuse kind of trauma. Um, I worry that's too much to unpack in 16 sessions. Yeah. And she said, well, you know, actually it's really good because it forces you to just uh, focus on one thing. And uh, then, you know, you have a little break once therapy ends and we right. kick you out after 16 sh sessions. So we can just focus on one thing. Yeah. It's not like having an infected toe, is it? It's, you know, where you can uh, cut the toe off or, or whatever. Aren't these traumas and emotions, are they somehow interconnected? I mean, she had no reason to think so, apparently. Wow. She was like, yeah, you know, you do the, you do maybe... <laughs> I was going to say do the childhood stuff, but that's also not going to happen in 16 sessions. No, no. It's like you can do one particular thing. Uh, and then after 16 sessions, we say, okay, fuck off. And then you have to reapply. And it took me two years to even get to the point of speaking to someone pre-therapy in this capacity, right? So um, the idea was that then I'd have to reapply, wait another two years. Um, then we could talk about sexual assault. And then finish that in 16 sessions, because that's easy to get through. Two years later? Yeah, then two years later, come back, and I was like, firstly, I'm not going to live in this area for six years. But and <laughs> She also said, oh, we have very few people um, returning to the service. It's actually very effective. And I was like, did they include the people who killed themselves after incomplete therapy on the service? We have very people returning. Quote, yeah. I mean, that's like a restaurant saying they enjoyed our food so much they didn't come back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I get that the point of therapy is to not need therapy, but yeah. I thought it was a very bold leap to say we don't really have many people returning to this service. Yeah, because they've looked at it and gone, fucking hell, yeah. I'm not gonna, I wouldn't touch this with your barge When we re-traumatise them and gaslight them for 16 sessions and then... Uh, oh my. Yeah. So this is all going on and it's, it's happening at a personal level, a cultural mm. level, it's, and then we're presented with that advert I, I i don't know I'll ask, I'll ask again what do we need to do what 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 must we do what can we do <clears throat> i mean i just feel like there isn't a simple answer like there needs to be like widespread and like reform and just complete rebuilding and restructuring of these services because yeah, yeah. at the moment they're designed in a way that is sort of profit focused, not profit focused, but you know. Budget. Budget focused, yeah, because yeah. Yeah, it's not profitable for them. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah, if, we, yeah. if we made being mentally ill profitable, yeah. <laughs> they'd value us more. Yeah, um, it, they, it's just, but also it's not, I hope this doesn't sound too like tinfoil hatty. This service is working exactly the way it was designed to. Sure, sure. It's not a coincidence. It's, you know, 
it's not really just through like some light and aptitude and well-meaning um it's inadequate it's, so it's, it's gatekeeping and it's keeping people out and yeah do you think it's purely down to underfunding or do you think there's there are other things at play or do you think you know attitudes and prejudices are, are, are inextricable from the lack of funding or I don't know I mean if you, like after seeing the way that our present government handled um, I mean even handled things like the, the pandemic it's really hard to look at their complete apathy towards um, vulnerable people in society sure sure um, and and not accuse them of basically eugenics <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah I you know Sometimes if I'm feeling really, really shit, I think what's keeping me alive is spite. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I will keep being a drain on your resources. Thank you. <laughs> it's as good a reason as any, isn't They'd it? be too happy if I killed yeah, myself yeah, yeah. because they'd, um, <laughs> they'd, you know, get rid of another service user. Yeah, yeah. Money waster. Bloody yeah. hell. And I also just think all the time, like, as I say, I've been in one way or another trying to access like access treatment from these services for about 15 years. Um, 10 years if you count just the time I've been legally an adult. Yeah. Or like 10 years since when I was diagnosed with BPD. And, um, oh fuck, I might have to start the sentence again because I've literally forgotten what I'm saying. Oh, the brain fog. It's okay. The brain fog is real. Um, Oh yeah, I remember. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, so from the time, um, yeah, been trying to access these services for fifteen years, or like you know, even if just from when I was diagnosed with BPD at eighteen, ten years, and I just so obvious to me that if they'd just given me some kind of appropriate treatment, yeah, even five years ago, or ten years ago, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have these problems now. The thing about complex trauma. Like, and PTSD is it when it's untreated, it does not go away on its own. It's like a cumulative thing. It's like a snowball, it festers, it, yeah. it grows into, it's like infection, it gets I guess. Worse yeah. every fucking week. Yeah, it's just, yeah. and like, it's been so bad recently, but it's also not surprising that it's been, that it's yeah, been awful. Yeah. Because when people who have complex trauma, like, you know, are just left completely unsupported in the world, they end up in, like, repeatedly in, like, very unsafe situations. Yeah, yeah end up you know being way more vulnerable to further abuse yeah and yeah. you know sometimes at the hands of medical professionals because yeah, why not yeah, yeah. you know it's it this it's not that um they'd save a lot of money by treating people when when they first present with, with but, but it's, it feels like there's almost a, a knee-jerk reaction that's, that says well, we, we we must protect the the money we, and and instead of thinking, you know, in the long term or even the medium term, mm. the knee jerk reaction is to get this person away, and and don't give them any services. Yeah. Did you read the article? I think it came out last night about right. the failures of cams. No, no. Oof. It's really bad. It's uh, um, I read it in A and E. Like, uh, link in the blurb. Right. Yeah. I'll send it to you. Um, I read it in A&E to further enhance that experience. Right, and right. Um, 
It's about how um, CAMS is so, CAMS is working so poorly now that there are young people who, um, like, one boy was literally pulled off a bridge right. where he was trying to jump and CAMS wouldn't accept him without a written referral for his GP. They were like, oh, we don't. Wow. We, they didn't believe that this was a serious situation that, you know, they wouldn't treat him basically until um, until a GP said. That's... Yes, the bridge thing was bad, actually. There was another, um, and these are, we're talking about children. Yeah, yeah. There was another kid who was found with a noose and um, in his bedroom trying to hang himself. And because he did not have enough red marks on his neck, they said he didn't qualify. They measured red marks on his neck? Yeah. What? They, they just didn't believe. There are... Um, there was one girl who has a very severe eating disorder who had BMI, was 16, and they said she didn't qualify for the eating disorder services. And you're like, how, how ill do you have to be to be on CAMS? Because like... Congratulations, you're dead. Yeah. yeah you've, you've, you've fully qualified. Yeah. It's really wild. And it doesn't surprise me because I engaged with CAMS as a teenager and they were actually just as shit then. Right, uh, right. Probably, I mean, they probably are worse now. Because <laughs> there's like, less money. Yeah. yeah, there's even less money. And I was, I was engaging with them 15 years ago, and this didn't surprise me based on my experiences with them. It's, it's heartbreaking, hmm. isn't it? It really is heartbreaking that, that it is, we've got to that level of badness. And, and you know, there, there's a bit of me that thinks professionals went into this job originally because they wanted to do some good. They... They, they, they must have, you know, you know, to do all that training, to get into a job, to, you know, to become part of a a, a, a profession, you, you do that for, you're driven, surely. Mm. And yet for them to be turned into these, I don't know what they are, you know, say, you know, saying this child, we've just pulled off a bridge, I need a GP referral. That's insanity. The level of like, I mean, I can't imagine having that level of like apathy. Yeah. And complete disconnect from like. But it's not. It's not apathy. It's it's willful rejection. Yeah. Isn't it? Um. That's that's horrible to hear. And and as I say, I'll, I'll put I'll put a link to that in in mm. in the the blurb because. It's it's shocking. We need, as a group of people, people with mental health problems, we need to do something. And I'll be saying that in, in all the conversations I have with folk until I can come up with something um, or even the beginning of something because none of this is good enough. Nowhere near good enough. Um, and, and we really need to... Um, change things how we go about it you know uh answers on a postcard to the usual address really um but i, I think we can i've got to think we can mm. <laughs> I, i'm like yeah there needs to be some sort of solution but then i'm like will there be one yeah yeah <laughs> like, like what chris like what well, I mean, like the obvious thing would be like you know, try and get rid of the Tories. 
Yeah, so there'd be more. Yeah, you can vote them money. out yeah. or just kill them. I'm not, I'm not fussy at this point. Yeah, yeah. Maybe don't publish that bit. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I feel like we're, you know, if Cams is rejecting um, children who've been pulled off bridges, I feel like we've reached guillotine point with, with, yeah. the, with a government that would, it, it would feel... approve these kind of policies. Well, I mean, that. That sounds like eugenics, doesn't it? I mean... It is. Right, okay, I'm going to wind up there. Uh, <laughs> now that we've uh, we've talked about um, a revolution. Yeah. <clears throat> Maybe that's, that is the way. I mean, if, if a psychiatrist <clears throat> listened to this, I'd be like, well, she sounds awfully murderous, definitely BPD. <laughs> <laughs> you, you see them sitting there with their BPD chart going, yeah, tick. Mm. Yeah, structural violence doesn't count as murder, though. Apparently, it, no, no, not at all. That that's no. uh, that, that's seem, that's normal behaviour for MPs. Yeah, of course. Okay, I'll say thank you very much for thank coming you. along, and uh, we will be doing another podcast, uh, a fully proper Holly mm. podcast. A catch up. <laughs> where is she now? Yeah, where, where is Holly now? And uh, yeah, spoiler alert: it's uh, it's been a journey. <laughs> spoiler alert: she's still in my fucking kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks. Bye for now. Thanks again to Holly for speaking so openly and candidly about her own experiences. I'll leave a link to her earlier podcast in the blurb. I hope to record an altogether more Holly-focused episode in the future. In the next penultimate uh, episode of these uh, Prejudice Diaries, I speak with Emma, who I hope will give you some notion of the systemic and institutional prejudice, not just in services, but in wider society too, against people burdened with this label. I still don't know what to do. Maybe, at this point, raising awareness is enough. Maybe there are still people out there who are unaware of our plight. Have a think. I'd love to hear from you. And keep 10am on Friday the 10th of June free for what I'd like to be both a physical and virtual gathering outside the Royal College of Psychiatry at the date and time that awful course was going to run. I've got some notion we could get together, read from the sacred text and sing. I think a slightly adapted version of Thorn in My Side by the Eurythmics and by that I mean slightly adapted. It's almost like the song was written for us. And or We Sink by the churches with a V. Wait for the chorus. You won't regret it. Sadly, because of copyright and such, I can't play them here. So I've put YouTube links in the, blur in the blurb. I've even thought of a name for our flash mob as we sing. How does Manipulative Mary and the Attention Seekers sound? Till the next time. Thanks again for listening.